0: We want diversity, we want character, we want some difference. And if we have essentially all the same building because it's prescribed to be that way, it's not contributing, I think, to a a more diverse way of looking at uh, not just housing, but the way we experience our city. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live, where we live.
1: I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Patrick Tag, an architect interested in technology and building innovation. Patrick joins us today to discuss his work on housing in Los Angeles. Patrick, welcome. Thank you,
0: Charles. Uh, it's great to be here today. Thanks for having me.
1: Nice to see you again. So Patrick, I know that you have been, uh, through your practice, interested in uh, among the central questions around the city of Los Angeles, Southern California more broadly, which is access to housing and its affordability uh, over the past number of years. I know that you've been engaged in a range of projects looking at affordability and access to housing. And so from that point of view, I wanted to begin with a, a more general question about the, the state of housing in Los Angeles. So wh- where do you see things? I mean, I know for, for many of the people we're talking with, this is among the biggest challenges that we face in, uh, in design today.
0: Sure, well, you know, as you know, um, in most of our cities, LA, also housing is a huge challenge and huge issue that, that we're all you know, working to um, contribute to in some way. We find ourselves doing a lot of projects and developer-driven projects, but um, we're also very much interested in working with nonprofits and looking at ways or new ways to, to come up with uh, housing solutions um, for, for Los Angeles. You know, we started out doing a lot of affordable Housing projects for uh, nonprofit developers. We're working on larger projects now. We're working on a, a project in Watts, or so South Central LA, for a nonprofit group, and their goal is to get a, a thousand units along the Central Avenue corridor. So for us, that's really exciting because it's um, you know these affordable housing projects are like very small, dense into a, a you know huge, huge problem, but. Um, This is a, this is a project that, that has the kind of scale that could, that could actually, you know, make a difference where it matters most. And this developer is, I think what is admirable is they own tons of property in this area and their mission is to um, develop it in a uh, sustainable way so that the, the people, the residents that live in the neighborhood will be able to stay there. They won't get forced to, to leave and to, and to move out of the city. So uh, this project, which I'm very excited about, our uh, goal is to create a thousand units of housing. Along with that would be support spaces, social services, uh, notions of how to su- support the people that, that live in this community. A lot of the housing will be, it, it's funny enough, They they want mostly uh, singles and one beds because they, they want to support formerly homeless. They want to support people coming out of jail. This is like the, the, the main target, the main focus of the, the, the people that need the housing the most, uh, in, in this community. It's a rather ambitious project. Uh, we, we presented it to, uh, the mayor's office a couple of weeks ago and they, uh, very supportive, a strong advocate for the project as well. So. In addition to, to that project, we, we're continuing to do smaller affordable housing projects. West Hollywood, the one in Santa Monica and LA, those tend to be infill projects. You know. So they're, they're contributing to the city, the urban fabric in, in a different way and a different scale, but it's a contribution
1: nonetheless. You mentioned that among the central challenges uh, in your work is really the question of scale. Uh, how can you make a dent in the enormous housing gap uh, in Southern California? The new project in South Central LA and Watts, as you've mentioned, aspires to build a uh, thousand beds. If I have it right, that's quite an enormous uh, increment of of housing in the city. But you began practice with uh, much more modestly scaled uh, work. Tell us, how did you get started in this uh, in, in this line of practice?
0: Sure. You know, we we've always been interested in housing, interested in new ways of housing people, new ways of looking at housing and producing housing, financing housing. We like many firms started out doing single family residential and that served as a great testing ground for us. And we were able to kind of develop our ideas and through the single family residence. And that led to other types of housing. In LA we do we do a lot of these small lot subdivisions where you take a lot and divide it up into multiple lots and provide Uh, multiple single family residences on one lot. So it's a way of increasing density within the city. You know, we do a lot of ADUs, basically second homes that would be uh, added to a single
1: family residential. Accessory dwelling units.
0: Correct. We're also doing a lot of uh, these co-living projects in LA. And this is a a typology. It's almost like like a dorm for young professionals, right? Where you would rent a room, the room would come fully furnished with a bathroom, all the furnishings are there, and you'd share the main living spaces with the other people that that live in in the apartment. So it's a way of creating density and providing housing at a more more affordable rate. Uh, Developers like the co-living because they can provide uh, the same amount of parking for a a six-bedroom unit as a two-bedroom unit. So, you know, it, it Offsets costs for developers at the same time, so there you know there's a lot of advantages to that, and we find that you know we just finished a, a couple of these co-living projects, and even with COVID, they seem to be doing well. So again, it's just like another way of thinking about uh, how do how do we create housing uh, in these times where uh, it's in such demand, right? Um, in addition to that, we do a lot of market rate stuff, so we do lots of mixed-use projects with developers multifamily and multifamily in combination with other uses, residential with commercial, et cetera. So our work varies in scale and type. And we've been really fortunate that we've been able to really kind of uh, explore different ways to think about design uh, and execute different housing typologies.
1: Patrick, what, in your experience, poses the biggest uh, challenge uh, to delivering affordable housing in Southern California?
0: Well, there are many. <laughs> Where do we start? Um, you know, uh, financing is a, a huge issue. The way these affordable housing projects get financed is a puzzle. There's people that their job is to solely figure out how to fund these things, right? Oftentimes, uh, an affordable housing project will have six or seven different lenders, uh, all of which will have different requirements. So for an architect designing an affordable housing project, oftentimes we'll have a, we'll have a matrix. Um so that we we're, we're, we make sure that we satisfy the requirements of each of the lenders that are involved in the project right so um the the way that the money is obtained um, for these projects is, is always a a challenge i think and you know at, at times there's there's money available and you other times there's not right so funding is is always an issue. I guess the next thing would be you know working with the uh, city you know, regulations, planning, zoning challenges there involve such things as parking. A lot of c- cities require a certain kind of parking requirement that might not necessarily be required for an affordable housing project, right? So we're designing these projects with parking in mind. And you know, quite frankly, the, the residents don't need parking spaces. So that's a huge kind of expense for the developer. A uh, not a uh, unnecessary expense to the pose challenge right um and then just uh you know the constructability of these things too um oftentimes they're you know they're uh, very they're expensive their human labor costs are high to build these things so oftentimes uh you know they get value engineered and things get cut along the way you know the challenge for us as architects always is to Try to hold on to maintain the integrity of of the project that we designed in the first place. You're getting it from all different angles, and you know at the end of the day, it it is a challenge to have a uh, or to keep you know a good good quality construction and to maintain the integrity of the design. So those are just some of the challenges that come with uh, designing affordable
1: housing. And you mentioned um, challenges with respect to uh, finance and the regulatory kind of frameworks. You're suggesting that these are more challenging in delivering affordable housing and various mechanisms than the simply in the for-profit world. Am I, am I correct in reading it that way?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, you know, in the, with a market rate developer, there's not as many Regulations or uh, restrictions per the lender. The affordable, you know, you're you have much more stringent regulations in, in terms of lender requirements, ADA accessibility, etc. So they they tend to be more complicated to produce, and ultimately more expensive to uh, to execute. Um, you know, we talk about like how how can we contribute to the housing stock, and I I think you have to chip away at it from any way you can, whether it's a small infill housing project of six units, or whether it's a more urban scale of a thousand. Right, it's all valid and it, it all adds up. So all these little infill projects, you know, ultimately are going to you know create a new kind of urban condition that will allow you know for for more affordable housing within our cities you know, LA is, is a city of, of infill, right? And um developers are just eating up all these lots and filling them as they can. And there's you know, there's still a lot of um opportunity for developers to come in and develop in LA and we're seeing that even in these COVID times, all these developers are coming from all over the country. They're coming to LA because there's still deals to be had and there's still opportunities to to create housing but for them to make money, right? So um bottom line is they're interested in making money and housing is a way to do it. And there's incentives for the developers in LA to create housing and in doing so, there's incentives for them to create more affordable housing. So for instance, like a, a market rate developer, if they can develop a certain project using a certain set of rules. They also can make use of affordable housing incentives, so for instance, if they design in such a way where they're incorporating more a, more a larger percentage of affordable units, then they get a bonus. so they might get another floor or additional height to the building. so it, uh, which would result in more FAR, more units, up more money, right? So oftentimes when we help developers uh, with their performance, we'll figure it out both ways. We'll figure it out like a buy right project and then a project that would take into consideration more affordability. And with that, they get more perks. And oftentimes it it pencils out for them to go with the affordable housing incentives because they can get a bigger project or more units. Ultimately they can make a little bit more money on it. So in that sense, you know, the the city's doing the right thing and that they're, they're trying or they're encouraging ways, for developers to integrate incentives into their projects.
1: In referring to buy right or uh, as of right, as it's known in uh, parts of the country, these are the the regulatory, the kind of land use and policy frameworks uh, attendant to the purchase of a piece of property without appealing to any uh, exemption or exception.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So like a buy right project, basically you adhere to all the guidelines and with Projects that take into consideration affordable incentives—they they might take longer or they might uh, involve more approvals—but ultimately, it's worth it because you, you're going to get advantages with your project.
1: You mentioned concerns around uh, gentrification, which is a topic, of course, uh, confronting uh, many American cities. Has this been a, a concern in your work?
0: Yeah, that's very much alive in L.A. And you know, a lot of it is just education. And when we say affordable housing, we're, we're basically saying. Uh, housing for most people, housing for people that earn an average wage, right? So like, uh, you know, these days, uh, a single mom that's a teacher would be eligible for uh, an affordable housing unit, right? So we're not talking about people that are super down and out. Of course, that's part, That's part. that's part of the population. But a lot of it is just people struggling to get by, right? So there's this there's just misconception of like what affordable housing. It's really um, it's just housing for people, right? There's a kind of a stigma, I think, still, right? And and we can see that today being perpetrated by some certain people. What we find is that people, you know, they tend to not want change, and they tend to be afraid of what they don't know. Obviously, um, so with a little education, we'll realize that. You know, these aren't terrible projects. They're actually good projects. We had a community meeting in Santa Monica, of all places, right? We're doing an affordable housing project there. And, you know, Santa Monica is supposedly this like politically correct and liberal place. And, um, all these people came out to uh, basically complain about the affordable housing project that we were doing. And we had a nice design, also we thought. And it was, it's in a, it's in a nice neighborhood near the beach. All the residents came out to, Basically, complain about having this project in their neighborhood, and then some people get up to speak to complain. And uh, one family got up, or a couple of families got up. Like one woman said, you know, hey, I'm I'm a single mom, and you know, I have a master's degree, and you know, I I work in education. Or I, I can't remember exactly what she worked, and she said, and I live in one of these buildings by the same developed by the same uh, nonprofit developer, and she went on to say how. You know, it's a godsend for her to have the opportunity to live in a building like this. What it's like, and the people that live there. And then um, after she finished speaking, the the community that had you know spoken up in opposition of it before, they were all kind of in shock. You know, and they didn't realize how terrible they sounded. Like this idea of you know the nimbyism is so true, and uh, half the time people don't even realize they're doing it. Right? We all have our prejudices, and I think there's a lot of prejudices
1: toward affordable housing. You used the past tense, had, you had a good design, or so you thought. Um, did it survive the meeting?
0: Oh, we still have it. It's actually under construction. And um, despite some opposition and value engineering exercises, we still, we still have a good book.
1: Patrick, your uh, practice was commissioned for the design of a project in West Hollywood a couple of years ago. Uh, the La Brea Affordable Housing Project, uh, serving specifically LGBT youth and those living with HIV AIDS. Tell us about how you got uh, into that project and what you saw as the potential in it.
0: Sure. So the, the project that you speak of is, uh, we call it our LABREA Affordable Housing Project. The project is for formerly homeless LGBTQ youth and other people living with disabilities. It's 42 units. It's, it's at a very prominent corner in West Hollywood, at the intersection of Santa Monica Boulevard and La Brea, two major thoroughfares in LA. And the, the client came to us, and you know they said, "Hey, we have this unique project. We want this. You know, we want we want this to stand out. We don't want it to read as you know a, you know, a typical affordable housing project." So we came up with a design that we thought made sense. It's actually a very simple building. The units are ordered and stacked and very rational. but we we had the opportunity to do something uh, more expressive and a little bit more flamboyant at the corner, which is you know, highly visible from this intersection. So we viewed the corner almost like this fifth elevation, and that became um, kind of the moment of, of the building. It denotes entry for the residents. It's kind of a, a corner piece that's wrapped with these aluminum Panels that create like a, a beehive type uh, situation that extends into the, the facade of the building, but that space—it's it's a foyer or an entry for the residents. It's enclosed. It's, it's an outdoor space, but it's essentially part of you know an interior uh, exterior space. It's it's right on the boulevard, but it's it's seen as interior. You know, part of the way of thinking about it was when we met with a lot of these uh, tenants or the tenants at the time and then the tenants after they moved in a lot of them were formerly homeless so when they came to the building they they actually weren't used to living in the apartment and they felt the need to, to leave like they it took them a while to to adjust right because there was so much they were so used to living on the street so this idea of like having a building that's very much connected to the street but yet it's also contained and protected and, and feels safe was something that was you know, that we sought to kind of integrate into the into the building um, and that was part of the idea for these like indoor outdoor spaces the building is uh, oriented around a courtyard so when, when you get on top of the second level of the plant all, a lot of social spaces are there around the courtyard so there's a community room and the laundry room the manager's office is there and they all kind of open up to this courtyard space which is a wonderful kind of hidden garden within the middle of the building. So, you know, that was, you know, that was also an important aspect of the project. The building is, you know, at the time we were, this was a few years back we were, we were encouraged to uh, make the building as sustainable as possible. So we have a you know, gray water system for the building and courtyard provides a microclimate for the building. Um, So there's a lot of like wonderful aspects to this project, but the most rewarding part of it is that the the tenants that live there are just like really wonderful people, so appreciative of being there. Uh, Which goes back again to like people having these ideas of what affordable housing projects are. They're they're actually the communities there and the people there are actually quite wonderful. And you know, of course, there's, there's always a few. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I've found that the people that have the opportunity, that are lucky enough to, to, to get one of these units, is so appreciative. And they're hard to get, right? Like, I think for that project, there was, it was a lottery system. And I think there were, you know, almost 10,000 people trying to get a spot, you know, for 50 units. Just ridiculous, the, the need. That's a little bit about LaBrea.
1: You mentioned the parking requirement as among the regulatory frameworks that may not be relevant in this context. Are there other policy or regulatory requirements that you think uh, could benefit from revision?
0: Uh, Yeah, there's a lot there. I think, you know, in L.A., we have a building typology that's based off of building type, right? So the cheapest way to build these projects would be type five would stick frame construction over a concrete podium, right? So usually the podium goes up to the first level or maybe the second level, and then you can do wood frame on top of the podium. So that basically dictates a five or six-story building, and that's the most economical way to build. So like in LA, most of our buildings now are this typology, right? There are these five or six-story buildings, concrete podium, wood frame above. If you change to another type, then it's more expensive. So you know that that's something that I think it is being reevaluated now. But definitely zoning, I think, is something that could be looked at in ways so that our city isn't overrun by basically the same building massing scale. And the cities, on top of that, they are actually trying to move away from this very prescriptive way of finding what these buildings are. And it, it basically comes down to cost, right? Uh, but what's happening, like, and, you know, you see a lot in Santa Monica, there's so many of these buildings lined up to another, and, and they're, they're very prescriptive in how they're, they need to be designed. They end up starting to look very similar, right? Which isn't good for our cities. We, we, we want diversity. We want character. We want some difference. And if we have essentially all the same building, because it, it's prescribed to be that way, you know, we're, we're kind of, it's not contributing, I think, to a, a more diverse way of looking at uh, not just housing, but looking at, you know, the, the urban fabric and the way we experience streets, the way we experience our cities.
1: Are um, issues of uh, minimum unit size or other parameters relevant here? I know in, in other contexts in these conversations in other cities, the notion of a, a certain you know, demand for a certain size unit or a certain amenity is not really appropriate given the challenge with respect to affordability and the number of people that just don't have access to housing.
0: That's right. Different cities have different requirements for their units. Some, some need to be an average size. Some need to be a minimum size. Some cities require that every unit has an outdoor space, you know, which is good and bad. It, it's good in the fact that there's more indoor outdoor kind of living, especially here in, in Southern California. But you know, in a way, it's bad too because then these buildings become all about the balcony, right? And the balcony becomes like the driver for for the architecture. There's different requirements for for housing, especially affordable housing, as you go from city to city and again from lender to lender right because some, some lenders require certain requirements certain minimum sizes per units or other kinds of amenities that, that need to be integrated into the design so you know as the architect you're, you're trying to satisfy you know all these all these different uh, components and at the end of the day try to satisfy your own need to create compelling architecture at the same time.
1: You've used the term integrity, uh, and you've referred to um, vision, uh, the idea of trying to do something innovative and creative within each project, no matter how modest. Where does that aspiration come from uh, in your work, especially with regards to affordable housing, which often tends toward the repetition of uh, small multiples?
0: It's challenged, and it, it varies from project to project and from developer to developer from site to site and from budget to budget, I think as architects are always kind of looking for that angle, right? Where we can make something out of our, or with our projects and with affordable housing, it's really challenging because a lot of these times, a lot of the design starts with this idea of like, maximizing the the site, getting in the the, uh, optimal amount of units, providing all, you know, the required, Open space and the required private open space. Getting the parking to work, right? Maximizing the parking. So you know you design basically from the inside out with these projects. You have to, to make sure that everything is there. You have to be strategic because otherwise you'd be left with you know a, a box and you'd be decorating a box. So you'd be you know, providing a skin on the box.
1: I know in in the best of your work, there's a level of interest in innovation, particularly with respect to technologies. You've spoken about sustainable goals and the notion of uh, various strategies. Because of that innovation, it strikes me, especially in the affordable housing work that you've been engaged in, it seems to me that there are moments when you find some some hidden logic, you open up some kind of organizational strategy or some kind of material strategy that allows for architectural expression in a way that maybe a market rate project might not have. Are there either advantages or opportunities for architectural innovation, speaking just for design for its own sake, just for the, for the notion of the architectural project, are there ways of thinking or working through affordability that open new avenues of thought or new or new f- forms of expression that might not otherwise be the case?
0: I, I think so. You know, housing, like you said, it is very much about the the repetitive nature of the unit or the module, which oftentimes need to be, you know, stacked and aggregated in a very kind of rational order so that everything works in the most economical way, right?
1: It's good when you're you're plumbing, <sighs> you know, water runs downhill, for example.
0: That'll help. <laughs> but I I think, you know, with the thing about affordable housing projects is just because they're called affordable, that, that doesn't mean that they're cheap projects. It doesn't mean that like everything that's put into them is the lowest common denominator. On the contrary, these nonprofit developers, oftentimes, they, they own the buildings. They're going to keep the buildings. So they want a quality building with quality products, quality construction. So there is an opportunity there, right? And then a lot of times, the, the cities that we work in are advocates for good design. So you know they they stand behind the project and um, they support strong design. So there's a, oftentimes there's more opportunity in affordable housing projects to, to maintain the integrity than with the market rate developer because the developer at the end of the day they're thinking more about their bottom line, whereas the, the nonprofit developer is thinking about the well-being of their tenants and their overall mission, which oftentimes is not just to build the projects, but to, to maintain them and to support. them.
1: Are you optimistic? You sound optimistic, kind of medium term, like going forward relative to the enormity of the challenges that we're facing.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to be, right? In LA, especially, we're surrounded by, I'm surrounded by, you know, colleagues that are doing great work in the affordable housing sector. You know, some might say that, you know, people look to Southern California, you know, as, I don't know, as, I wouldn't say a leader, but examples of good, affordable housing projects, right? So there's a healthy kind of um, dialogue between us. You know, we all know each other. We, we all know the developers. The developers are oftentimes very open to working with good architects, which is wonderful. And there's there's an opportunity for a lot more of these projects in the future. That we need to keep that pipeline going. And, you know, we need to be um, smart about how we design them. And you know, there's opportunities sometimes for, you know, like, like a you know, a more kind of expressive building. And then other times, you know, that it might need to be much more straightforward and quiet. And, you know, we do those projects too, right? Like not every affordable housing project is gonna be make a huge statement. It doesn't need to. There there's a time for that. But then there's also time for just a really good quality, solid uh building that serves the community, right? So I guess I'm I'm optimistic because in this day and age, you know, we need these projects, they're important to the community and to the city and in LA there's a lot of camaraderie, I guess you could say, amongst, you know, the group that's doing this work that to me is very exciting.
1: Speaking of making a big impact in, in going upscale to 1,000 uh, beds, 1,000 units, South Central LA, Watts, what are the different kinds of challenges you're confronting now in that scale of project?
0: Well, what's wonderful about the Watts Project, it's a whole new level. Um, this group started out right after the Watts riots or the Watts Revolution you know, in the 60s, and their mission was to su- support the community. And WLCAC, they're called, Watts Labor Community Action Committee. <laughs> And at the time they, they owned some property and throughout the years they bought more and more property and now they just, they own a huge amount of property in South uh, Los Angeles. They've been approached to, you know, sell it off and have it developed by developers and they're not interested in that kind of gentrification. They really want to support the, the local community and provide Housing and, and services and amenities, for, for the people that live there, right, which is really admirable. So we're we're working on this wonderful project. The goal is to create, you know, a thousand units along the stretch stretch of the Central Avenue corridor that's roughly a half a mile long. And they, surprisingly, they want mostly one beds and studios. There's a lot of single people that need housing in, in that community. People come out of jail and they, they really have a hard time transitioning or it's impossible for them to transition because they, you know, they're in the system and it's really hard to, to, to get out. It's hard to have a place to live. It's hard to get, to get a job. And there's a, a need for housing, formerly homeless, uh, formerly incarcerated, uh, in addition to all the other, uh, needs for housing in the community. So. It's a great project to be part of, and then the way it contributes, you know, to the city also, you know, is, is a great opportunity that we're very excited about.
1: So when you founded your practice, you know, you, you obviously had, um, uh, you know, trained as an architect, had an extraordinary academic career, an apprentice, worked with some... Of, some of the city's leading uh, architects, did you imagine that you would be dealing with questions of housing, especially affordability in, in this way? Was that something that was uh, in the air as you were you know, uh, get, getting your apprenticeship, as you were you know, getting your degree, as you were kind of forming as an architect?
0: Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure really. When I worked for Frank Gary, Tom Main. Housing wasn't particularly on the forefront of what they were doing at the time. It really became something that I took on when I started my own practice. I had the opportunity to start off designing one affordable housing project and that led to, to many others. It was a project type that we liked having in the office despite the many challenges. We found it very rewarding and it was wonderful to be working on uh, that project in addition to the other types of projects that we have in the office. You know, I, I, I love having a diverse Office in the sense that we can work on affordable housing projects we, we can work on commercial projects we, we can work on single family we have a few of those in the office we can work on public work you know to have a nice range is wonderful I think to do only affordable would be a little challenging as, a, as an overall office but to have it as part of our repertoire it, it really is a, a nice complement to what we do
1: you mentioned uh, Patrick working as you were coming up with, uh, with Frank Gary and Tom May. And so two, um, you know, f- founding fathers of the so-called LA school or Santa Monica school. Is that a rubric that has any purchase for you these days? I mean, I know that, you know, th- there are those that have rejected it and said, no, there's actually a new moment going on in Southern California. Or to what extent do you see that uh, cultural legacy as described uh, relevant to you and your work? Well,
0: you know, I spent, um, well, most of my time with Tom May, eight years at Tom's office and what I got out of that was so much, but um, really, a like a work ethic and a, and a way to work and a way to produce. And it's it's not so much about like style for me, but it's more about like his drive, passion, and vision in the way that he created architecture. And I think that uh, you know I strive to have that kind of energy, you know, throughout my career. That was the thing that I took away most from that office was, you know, how do you how do you keep a practice energized and keep the momentum all the time and continue to do work that's evolving and changing, engaging, and dealing with um, your current issues? So it's not about, you know, the style or, or the look of the architecture by any means. But again, what I took away from that office was so much more than that.
1: So, Patrick, you um, and your practice are now, uh, if I could characterize it, kind of mature. You know, you sort of, you, you're you no longer emerging. You have emerged. I think that's fair. Dozens and dozens of awards and honors, extraordinary recognition um, uh, at, a, at a national level. Where do you see the practice going? If you can, you know, obviously, architectural practice is day to day, right? It's payroll, payroll. It's project to project. But if you look out onto the horizon, where do you see your work going?
0: Well, uh, I think... You say we've emerged. I'm not sure if we've emerged, but we're trying to emerge or emerging. Uh, it's a process. It, it takes some time. You know as architects, we're always learning, we're always you know, taking in new information and new challenges. And that's what's so great about this profession. You know, we're never bored because there's so much to learn to no, know, right? So you know, I, I'm open. I'm, I'm always open to new types of work. And we're, you know, we're, in addition to our housing projects, you know, we have we have a lot of other types of projects that we're working on um, that keeps us um, fresh and uh, current. You know, I'm not so interested in you know growing in terms of numbers, but I am interested in terms of growing with respect to new projects and new types of projects and getting that type of project that we haven't done before. You know that, that's my goal—to just keep doing, you know, thoughtful work that that will lead to more thoughtful work. That's what any architect would want, I would think. And we're fortunate enough to, to be at a point right now where you know where that's all happened. So even with this whole COVID thing, that, you know, the housing has actually been a godsend through COVID. But we've been uh, really fortunate that we you know where we're growing and expanding. And, that's what I continue, that's what I want to continue to do.
1: When did it occur to you that you wanted to uh, be an architect?
0: That's a good question. I, I, um, you know, I, I was always interested in the arts and I was always making stuff and my father actually worked in construction. So there was that part of it. And I think um, I, I had a fine arts background as an undergrad. And then after that, I realized that I'd like to combine more of my interest in architecture was a great way to do that. I was inspired very much by what was happening out in LA, and I wanted to be part of that. So I uh, packed up my car and I drove across cross-country. <laughs> Here I am, still in LA.
1: Patrick, thanks very much.
0: Thanks, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American City Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.